Welcome to The Last Word on the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Every week we take a last look at the message from the most recent Crosstalk. Enjoy this short conversation and stay tuned for the full message directly after. Hello and welcome to The Last Word. I am Cam, I'm one of the Crosstalk interns this year and I'm joined by two lovely, amazing people. We got... I'm Paulina. I'm on staff here at Crosstalk. And I'm JD. I'm on staff here with Crosstalk. (laughs) Hi, everyone. (laughs) Hi, everyone. Paulina is also glad to be here. I'll say that for her. (laughs) Um, And so I just wanted to hop into a couple questions from Crosstalk this past week. And so we can kind of dive into a little discussion about that. Um, And JD, you said at Crosstalk, and I really liked the statement, that rather than follow the law, we need to teach people what it means to follow God. And so us, as people who want to be disciple makers in today's world, um, how do you think we can practically do this when we're going and loving people on the Texas State campus and in this church? I think that the biggest thing about kind of understanding that sort of a question is that we as followers of Jesus are not called to behavior modification. Mm-hmm. We're not called to to make sure that everybody is following the rules and that they're saying the right things, they're doing all the right things. What we're after is heart transformation, right. not behavior modification. And so we can all, well, we all probably relate to this, but we also probably have done this to others where it's, we're just concerned that they do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes their heart is not in the right place, although they're doing the right thing. And so our, our basic belief as followers of Jesus is that when we come to know Jesus and he begins to transform our hearts, our actions will start to change. And it's not the other way around where we are super focused on behavior and then assuming that the heart's going to change. And so let's start with the heart. Let's start them in a place where they understand what it means that Jesus loves them, cares for them and wants what's best for them. And then their life will begin to be transformed as a result. I love the paradox of the law bringing us death because it just points out the wrong that I do. It just holds up a standard that I always fail. And I think it's similar. That's why it can be so hurtful with other people when we hold up that anything, one behavior or uh, just some cultural behaviors or just pointing out sin in people's life in an unhealthy way. That's why it's hurtful because the law, even God gave us law so that we could see our need for him, Mm -hmm. you know, but we can never live up to any part of the law. And I think remembering that and remembering the places for me where I have felt like the sin police. That's what I always used to call it because I felt like, okay, Mm -hmm. I just would see all this stuff in people's lives and it's not always the right time or the right place to bring that stuff up for in the people that I live life with. Um, And I think just letting the Holy Spirit do his job that only he convicts and only he pierces our hearts for us individually Mm -hmm. and for other people and just following his lead on that, I think helps me be in a better mindset when living life with people, because then I'm not the one calling out sin or worrying about Mm -hmm. behavior modification, but I'm allowing God to go first and the Holy Spirit to lead those conversations as he stirs them sometimes in me for someone else um, or in someone else. And then they bring that up and we get to have that conversation. So Mm -hmm. I think that helps keep me in check and not become the sin police or bringing people to the law. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. Um, That's actually a really good 
way to transition into the next question I had, which was when we talked about when uh, JD said, like, giving the Pharisees the benefit of the doubt, if we're going to do that, the Pharisees are committed, they're so committed to following the Jewish law because they know that it brings you closer to God. And so today, how can we begin to see God's commandments as as life-giving rather than burdensome while not acting and, and being like the Pharisees in that way? That is, that's the key question, right? right? (laughs) If we say that we're following Jesus and that his way is better, then we're saying that there is more meaning, that there's more joy, that there's more value ultimately in living life the way that Jesus says. And that's very contradictory to what you would think, because it means that I can't always do what I want to do, that I can't pursue the desires of the flesh, that I can't just gratify myself and my own selfish desires. And so I think that the main thing for me is understanding the love of Jesus more and more, Mm -hmm. that it is the love of Jesus that spurs me on towards obedience, knowing that he loves me and that he has my best interest in mind, as opposed to viewing this like the parental relationship where it's my mom or my dad telling me you can't do this and you can't do this, otherwise you're going to be grounded. Well, that's not the perspective that God has. And so he's not there just like as an angry dad wanting Mm -hmm. to tell you that you've done all of these things wrong, but he's saying, I have something more Mm -hmm. for you. And that ultimately is an issue of trust for us is do we trust that God's way is actually better than our own way? And that, yes, I might feel lonely. I might feel like I'm missing out on things by saying no to the ways of the world, but trusting that in those moments, even in those moments of loneliness, that God has ultimately something better for us when we choose to follow him and choose to believe that his way is better in mm-hmm. our life. Absolutely. Yeah, I like that. I think it's shifting our perspective from the can'ts to the can, you know, yeah, or the yeah, do. Yeah. And I can see how that changes instead of, you know, coming out of when I first became a believer, especially and even when I came to college and that faith became more of my own than it had before. Yeah. Just seeing all of these like feeling all of the fleshly desires to gratify myself, mm-hmm. but then to like not focus on the can'ts and just have a list of like, well, I'm a believer and so I don't do this and I don't do this. But instead, yeah. I think seeing even in things that feel really rule-like, like some of the Old Testament, just mm-hmm. seeing how God's goal was one thing and therefore all of this other stuff takes away. You know, so God's yeah. goal for us is, his heart for us is wholeness and health. And so in order to have that, there are things that come against that, you know, and that take us yeah. away from God and his heart and yeah. his love. Yeah. And yeah. so seeing that just, it's a small shift, but it helps me a lot and mm-hmm. not making and giving, letting the, his commandments and just his instruction for life be life giving instead of feel like a rule book. Yeah. Jesus's kindness and love is what leads us to repentance. Mm-hmm. And it's not like the other way around, but like praise God that it's not just a list of like what we can't do, but it's more like what we can do with Jesus and how we can be transformed by him. It's just so amazing. Um, I also, last question for you guys. I wanted to ask you when uh, JD talked about living as free people and showing what others, what it means to live as those free people. How have you both been impacted by people who have lived as free people and shown you what it means to do that? I would not be here today if it wasn't for people who showed me what it meant to live as a free person. Um, Mm -hmm. 
I wanted when I came to know when I came to know Jesus, I wanted to put all of these burdens on myself. I'm a very performance driven person. And so there has to be a metric qualitative and quantitative metric of success. And so for me, the only thing that I could think of is all of the ways in which I was failing to measure up to God's glorious standard. Mm -hmm. And what I was shown instead of condemnation and like this affirmation that, yeah, you aren't enough. You're not doing enough. What I was met with is somebody who said, yeah, and I'm not enough either. And that's okay. Like we ultimately know that this life is a journey towards becoming more like Jesus. And the expectation isn't to be perfect today. And so what he did is he gave me the freedom to take the burden off of myself and also the burden off of other people and to live in, as Paul says, the newness of life in Christ. And that ultimately, I think going back to your last question is how the the works of the law no longer are burdensome and and like this awful thing that we have to live up to, but it's something that's freedom filled and joy filled when it's like, well, they, we, we don't have all of these burdens. Mm-hmm. We know that like Christ set us free. Mm-hmm. And so let's walk in that freedom and not expect ourselves or other people to be perfect. I think that people often uh, like take the, it's Romans three twenty three for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Great. That is a perfect theological truth. Mm-hmm. What we oftentimes think, I think, is that that is past tense, that we all have mm-hmm. sinned, past tense, done. Mm-hmm. Therefore, we don't give people the freedom to not be perfect today and tomorrow and five years down the road. And even when they get to the last days of their life, it's like, this isn't a a, a past tense thing. Our sin nature is prevalent throughout our entire life. And so we have to give people the freedom to not be perfect. And that includes and begins with ourself. I, when I first started coming to Cyprus, um, I don't even think, I wasn't very consistent on Sunday morning. So I just found out about Crosstalk, was a part, knew a couple people. Um, and I came to a Sunday morning uh, service in Wimberley. And I don't even know, I wish I could remember who it was, but I just remember that it was mom giving her testimony. And I don't know why or what the context was, but what mm-hmm. has stuck with me and will probably stick with me forever is she was talking about how she was trying to be perfect for her daughter. Like, to set a perfect example of what it meant, you know, to do whatever, all the character issues. And what she realized is that what her daughter, her daughter already has a perfect example in Jesus. That is, he is the standard. And so she, that pressure was off of her. And instead what she needed to be was an example of what it looks like to fall well and that has always stuck with me. I think that's how, that's so freeing to me when I think about that, because it's not if I fall, you know, but it's when I fall is my choice going to be to repent quickly and to get rid of whatever lie it was that got me there, you know, and to want more, or is it, am I going to sit in it and turn away from God and continue in those patterns? And I just really love that about her testimony. You know, that I think that, that does what you said, JD, about, all of us on the same playing field like we're all we all have fallen and we all fall you know currently and in the future and so knowing that how can I I think being free is just being somebody that can fall that is learning to fall well yeah and not being stuck in that and not pretending that I don't fall because I do still in big ways 
For sure. I think that's a really cool story. And I think you're a really cool testimony of that. Just hearing how you came in, like when you were a college student and like just starting to come to Cyprus and not really knowing what's going on and just seeing how God has pierced your heart through the years and how you're now sitting here and Mm -hmm. that you're working for his kingdom and in this church. I just think it's so cool. Such a cool testimony. Um, But I wanted to pass it over to JD to wrap it up, to give us a little bit of a heads up of, of what's coming this week. Yeah, you got it. Um, just kind of a, a quick thought to wrap up this week. When you look at the the latest study, uh, I think it was a Barna study on the church, the two biggest words that were used to describe Christians were hypocritical and judgmental. Mm. Hypocritical and judgmental were two of the top three. And I think that it is because we have taken what is meant to be freedom filled and joy filled and we have made it burdensome for other people Mm -hmm. and we've made it this metric of success. And so I think if we take what Paulina is talking about and we take this idea that we all have fallen and will fall and our goal in life is learning how to fall well and return to Jesus quicker and quicker, Mm -hmm. then man, we get to begin to change that narrative Mm -hmm. when we get to start to see how the outside world changes their perspective on how they look at church. No longer are we judgmental and hypocritical, but we're authentic and we're vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And we invite people into a space where they can do the mm-hmm. same and a space where they can encounter the living savior. And so this next week, Paulina is going to be preaching, which I'm always really excited about. She's going to be talking about the conversion of the Philippian jailer, which is a remarkable, miraculous story. And so I'm really excited to see where Paulina goes with that. And so we will guys see you guys on Thursday night. So I'm on my drive home, and I've had a buddy who, uh, his family really is truly going through this really difficult time right now. And so all week since he called me and told me what was going on, I've just been checking in with him every day. Been checking in with him every day, and that buddy is, is a guy that I have known and been friends with since I was in first grade. And he and I grew up playing soccer together. Our entire life, we played on the same soccer team. And so I call him on the way home and I'm telling him all about all of this. And I'm just relating kind of what's been going on in our lives. And he and I started uh, in a kind of a brief respite moment for him in a, in, a, in a space in his life, in a time in his life that is really tiresome, that is full of stress and anxiety, that really it requires a lot of him as a caregiver for people in his family. It served as this, as this moment of respite where we just got to reminisce on and an entire right now at this point is probably 22 or 23 year friendship. And all of these moments that, that have been wrapped up inside of that. And as I started to think about that, we were talking about the things that we used to do when we were kids and the ways in which that we used to, that we used to spend time. And as a kid, you play all sorts of games. And you half the time, these are established games. Like he and I were on the same soccer team. We'd play basketball together. We'd play baseball together. And so these are established games that have sets of predetermined rules where you're required to follow the rules. Well, the other half of the time, you guys, especially when you're young, you're basically just making up your own game as you go along, right? And so the, the rules are ever changing and they're ever evolving as the game is taking place. And that's really awesome because if you're the one who gets to make up the rules, or at least it was for me when I was making up the rules, because I always created the rules to suit me, right? I always wanted to win. And so I would make rules that suited me winning while everyone else would lose. 
And when I was a kid, we used to spend the night at my buddy uh, Max's house. And Max had this awesome thing that people in Texas don't have, and that's called a basement. He had this super rad basement. And down in the basement basically was just like pool table, ping pong tables. He had foosball. We used to go down there and just play video games until all manner of the night. And at some point, we came up with, probably on accident, a game that was a variation of like hide-and-go-seek tag. And in the basement, because it's so far underground, there's no, there's no windows. And so we would cut the lights off and we would play this game, only it added an element of like absolutely doing your best to cause physical harm to the person who was it be, so that they couldn't find you. So it was just kill them with whatever you had, your body, the table, like whatever you could find is what you were throwing at them. And my buddy Nathan is the one who created the game. Now, Nathan used to make us so mad because Every time he would get tagged and was it, he had a new revision to the rules that made it so that he wasn't it. And I'm sure that y'all have similar sorts of stories from when you were kids, whether that's with siblings, whether it's with groups of friends. And the thing is, those things don't stop as we get older. We just get sneakier about how we create those rules. It's no longer about games that we've made up on our own but it's in, uh, on our teams and in our friendships. When we get into middle school and high school, it becomes how we determine who can be in our friend groups and on our teams. Mean Girls is the perfect example, right? That there is this made up set of rules of what it takes to belong to a group. That's exactly what that is. It's just in a more formalized structure. And if we're being perfectly honest, it also takes place here in college. We do the same sorts of things. We have to look a certain way. You have to dress a certain way. You have to talk a certain way to belong to whatever group that is. And the most insidious place that this takes place is in the church. And sometimes there are these spoken expectations of people in the church, but more often than not, there's this undercurrent of unspoken expectations of what it means to belong. And these issues are not unique to, to us, but it's something that the church has really been wrestling with and dealing with throughout its history. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to turn to an instance in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at how the church handles the question of who belongs and who doesn't belong. And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. If you guys want to flip open to there, we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 21. And it says, But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers." When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done for them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. And there had been much, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The story tells us that there are these men who come down from Judea and they proclaim that unless you are circumcised, you can't be saved. And their process concerns the conversion of these uncircumcised Gentiles, whether circumcision is necessary for their salvation. The reason for their protest is this long-standing Jewish tradition that the act of circumcision was central to the identity of the covenant people of God. In other words, circumcision is this necessary sign to claim identity as the people of God. And we could go deep into the weeds on explaining the significance of circumcision, but here is the short version. Circumcision was expected of every Jew and of every Jewish convert who expected to share in Israel's blessings according to the promises that God made to Abraham in the book of Genesis. What Paul and Barnabas, on the other hand, are arguing is that this rite of of initiation, circumcision, has been reduced to a symbolic exercise rather than a physical one, meaning that salvation is a matter of the heart, not of the flesh. So after their argument with these men, they're sent to Jerusalem to go and to ask the Jerusalem church what is true. And it says that along the way, they're sharing the good news of what Jesus has done in these Gentiles' lives, and it encourages those believers who hear it. And so they show up in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem church welcomes them with open arms. And underneath all of this activity lies this sense of urgency. Because what Paul and Barnabas are doing is that they're looking for clarity from church leadership as to this question. Do Gentiles need to be circumcised to follow Jesus? And this sense of urgency pervades this meeting not because they question Paul's mission to the Gentiles, nor do they question like the purity and the practices of the church to stand apart from the rest of the world. Rather, the implied threat lies with the stubbornness of certain Jewish believers 
whose protests of Paul's mission threaten their membership in the restored people of God. Meaning that if circumcision is no longer necessary, then they lose their identity as of what of them being special or unique as the people of God, because everybody has been included into this family. And so the floor is given to some Pharisees who are apparently part of the Jerusalem church at this point. And the Pharisees, we have to understand, are very concerned with these carefully prescribed social and theological boundaries. And they're concerned with following primarily the rules of the Mosaic law. And they, if we try to take a sympathetic position to the Pharisees, we can begin to understand why they care so much about this. Because the Pharisees, you see, they fully understand the history of Israel. And they so badly want the Israelite people to share in the blessings of God. And they know that that only comes from obedience to the Mosaic law. And they know very well the consequences for not following the law. And so we can begin to understand that their heart in this is that we have to follow the law because this is how we experience the blessings of being the people of God. And their earnest commitment in relating these biblical teachings to these real life, like religion and practice, reflects a larger commitment to the community's purity before a holy God within a broken and sinful world. Their heart is for the church to stand out against the world as this picture of purity, as this picture of blamelessness, which isn't inherently a bad desire. The, the people of God should stand out from the rest of the world. There should be something different about us as the people of God. It's just a misplaced desire because it's placing burdens on other people. It says that after the Pharisees say their peace, Peter gets up to speak. And he recounts the importance of his experience with Cornelius, which we talked about several weeks ago, where God comes to him in a vision and, and proclaims that all are clean in his sight. And so he goes and he travels to Cornelius's house and Cornelius receives, and all of his family and his friends, they receive Jesus and they, and they receive the Holy Spirit in that moment. And his basic point is this, God's will is publicly disclosed in the conversion of Cornelius. End of debate. Peter here asserts that the church's mission to uncircumcised Gentiles is God's choice, is the word that he uses. It's God's choice. Therefore, no one, especially us as human beings, has the right to say otherwise. And his mention of their reception of the Holy Spirit, he uses as, as a proof text that God has chosen to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Following his speech, Peter asks a question of those who are there. He says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? The implication of this is that no one in the room has been able to fulfill the requirements of the law. None of us have been able to live up to that standard. So why are we trying to place this burden on other people knowing that we can't even live up to the standard? And so he follows up that question with a really remarkable statement. He says, we believe that we will be saved through 
the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And what we see in this statement is that the disciples' identity, whether Jew or Gentile, is not based on our obedience to the Mosaic law. It must be evidenced by a new life in the Spirit that circumcises the believer's heart and enables them to live in a transformed manner. It's an internal thing, not an external thing. And it says that all of the people fall silent as they listen to Barnabas and Paul who get up and they share all of the wonders and the signs that God has done through them among the Gentiles. So James goes on to speak and he agrees with what Peter says. And his main point is that the scriptures, the Old Testament pointed towards God's mission to the Gentiles. Therefore, we shouldn't burden them with these acts of the law. Rather, we should begin to teach them what it means to follow God. He says, encourage them to stay away from idols, to abstain from sexual immorality and avoid eating either food with blood or strangled food. And all of these are religious practices that would have been associated with the pagan temples in Greco-Roman society. And so what he's saying here is encourage them with what it means to follow God in the midst of their culture in their time. To stay away from idols, to follow the one true God. Let me create a hypothetical situation for you guys. What I want you guys to do is I want you guys to picture the movie version of heaven here for a minute. The most prototypical movie version of heaven that you can come up with. The more ridiculous, the better, because I'm not trying to make a theological statement about heaven. I'm just trying to paint a picture here, okay? So get as ridiculous with this as possible. So I want you to, to envision there are big pearly gates, big shiny pearly gates, and they're perched on top of these big fluffy white clouds. You guys with me? And all of the angels are these chubby little babies with the diaper that looks like it's fallen off of them with the wings, right? They're barely staying afloat at this point. The whole nine, you guys have that picture with me? For me, in my brain, for some reason, it's always animated. That's the only place my, my brain can go is to an animated picture of what this looks like. And so you, personally, you roll up to these big pearly gates at the end of your life. And there's the cartoon God there in his long robes with the big, long beard. And he has a question for you, a single question. Why should I let you in? Why, for all of the funny business with the picture, a very serious question. We stand before those gates and God says, why should I let you in? The first time somebody asked me this question, I answered because I've tried to live my life in a way that honors God and I try to tell people about Jesus. That was my answer. I try to do the right thing and I try to tell people about Jesus. And the key thing for us in that sentence is because I. And we could add a whole bunch of different things after because I. 
Because I love people, because I don't lie, because I don't cheat, because I don't steal, because I don't gossip, any number of things. We could, we could create that list forever. But any sentence that starts with because I is a dramatic misunderstanding of the gospel. Any sentence that starts with because I is a dramatic misunderstanding of the gospel because implied in any sort of sentence like that is the belief that what saves you is Jesus plus something else. That what gets me in through these hypothetical pearly gates is Jesus plus something else. The only thing that should follow the word because is Jesus. Because Jesus, period, end of story. That's it. Jesus is the one who paid the price, and that is the only reason I'm saved. People want to add all of this other stuff to it. But Jesus alone is sufficient for salvation. And the question that's brought to the forefront by our hypothetical thought experiment is, are we focused on the external things or the internal things? Those in Judea who came before Paul and Barnabas and the Pharisees in Jerusalem were highly concerned with the external things. They were concerned with works of the law. They they were concerned of these acts of ritualistic purity, that you had to be circumcised because that was a symbol of purity, of being a part of the people of God. In other words, they wanted the whole church to be pure. Everybody has to act right. Everybody has to dress right. Everybody has to talk right, right? Some of us maybe grew up in a church where that was the case, right? There were very clear expectations, how you had to dress, how you had to act, and how you had to talk when you were within those four walls. And these expectations function as the gatekeepers to a community because they determine who is in and who is out. Do you meet our qualifications for membership? And what we've talked about so much with the book of Acts is that, and it sounds a little bit repetitive, is that we want to reserve the right to judge others. We ultimately have this desire to determine and judge who is in and who is out, who belongs and who doesn't belong in those spaces. And on the other hand, what Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James argue is that God is concerned with the internal things, not the external. You see, Christ has paid for our sins by his death on the cross. Christ alone is sufficient for the problems of this world. Christ alone is our way to salvation. There is nothing that needs to be added to Christ's work for salvation. Because Jesus. Because Jesus. It is Christ alone plus nothing. It is Christ alone that is the center of our faith. It is his work that is sufficient. Therefore, our identity as followers of Jesus is not based on our obedience to the law. 
or to somebody else's expectations of what it means to belong to a community such as a church or to a college ministry or to a Bible study. Rather, it is demonstrated by new life in the spirit that circumcises our hearts and enables us to live in a transformed manner. That is what Jesus does. It's not about the external things. Because I can tell you from experience in my own life, I'm really good at doing the external things with my heart being absolutely wrong. I lived the first 17 years of my life believing that if I did good enough, that I acted right and that I talked the talk, that that was good enough. And there came a moment in my life where I realized that I had idolized so many other things like acceptance and success and achievement and accolades and that those things were always going to let me down. And it was only in that space that I began to understand that it is Jesus alone that can save me. So what I want us to do is I want us to take, and this, and this probably is going to sound a little weird, I want us to take a communal deep breath. I'm dead serious. And what we're going to do is we're going to take a deep breath together. So we're going to go in through our nose, out through our mouth. You guys ready? One, two, three. Isn't that relaxing? The pressure is off, y'all. Take a deep breath because we no longer have to put all of this pressure on ourselves to be good enough or to be pure enough or to act right or to always say the right thing. We can stop our feeble attempts at trying to be good enough or do good enough to earn our way to salvation, to earn our way to acceptance by Jesus. You belong because of Jesus's atoning work on the cross. That's it. The pressure is off. If you have never, if you are here today and you have never said yes to Jesus in your life, that is all that I hope you hear tonight. That it's not about meeting a list of all of these things that you have to do in order to be able to come to God and earn your salvation. What I want you to know is that it's Jesus alone. You just have to say yes to Jesus because he is there and he is offering that freely. It may well be the one truly free gift that we can receive in this life. And he's standing there wanting to welcome you in. As you are, as dirty and as messy and as messed up as you think you are, Jesus says that you have a place with him in the family of God. Now, if you're here today and you already know Jesus, my message is a little bit different. Stop it. Stop it. First and foremost, stop judging yourself. Stop placing burdens on yourself of what you have to be like or what you have to do or how you have to talk or how you have to act. Stop it. Second, stop placing those burdens on other people. 
When we place those burdens on other people, we are creating barriers between them coming to know the love of Jesus. So stop it. The pressure is off, y'all. So take a deep breath and let yourself feel that freedom. And then when you understand that freedom, offer it to other people. You guys really want to see a community come alive? Start doing that. Live as free people and offer freedom to other people. It's simply that. Live a life free of all of your burdens that you place on yourself and stop placing those burdens on other people. Because we need to focus on the internal things. What did Jesus say is the greatest commandment? Love God and love others. That only happens if we give ourselves the freedom to stop putting burdens on ourselves and on others. So let's be a community that does a great job of loving God and loving others and trusting the fact that Jesus is doing his transforming work in our heart and our actions, our beliefs, our thoughts will will be moved towards him in his time and in his way. It's not our job to police ourselves or to police others in that way. Let's walk in the freedom that Jesus designed us for. Let's be a people who fully throw ourselves on the grace offered in Jesus Christ, trusting that his work is enough because it is Jesus and nothing else. Amen? Let me pray. Father God, Lord, we come with you. Thanks again for tuning in to the Crosstalk Messages podcast. Make sure you are following Crosstalk on social media at Crosstalk underscore TXST. If you have any questions for the Crosstalk team, you can send us a message on those pages. We will see you here again next week.